1: Henry Kissinger's undergraduate thesis set a record at Harvard. At 383 pages, it is thought to be the longest ever written. So lengthy that future projects were limited to a third of the size. It examined the meaning of history and the role that individuals play in shaping it. The young Kissinger took in thinkers from Socrates to Kant to Dostoevsky. Eventually, the thesis was awarded the highest possible honors. For the best part of a century, Kissinger has thought a lot about the relationships between the world's great powers and how to prevent war between them. Today, a sense of that threat is palpable. From Washington and Beijing, the problems are clear. Mutual suspicion, little contact, a struggle for dominance. Meanwhile, Europe is at war and Russia is tumbling into China's orbit. For a sobering analysis of how grave the risks are, you just need to go to midtown Manhattan. There are so many photographs in here, Dr. Kissinger.
2: Well, is presidential pictures here, in this corner.
1: Two presidents you served? Kissinger first arrived in New York in 1938 as a refugee fleeing Nazi Germany. He became one of the towering figures of 20th-century foreign affairs. First as a scholar, and then a practitioner, national security advisor and secretary of state to Presidents Nixon and Ford, he shaped some of the most controversial and consequential episodes of American foreign policy. For the past half-century, Kissinger emerged as a quiet counselor and emissary to presidents, prime ministers and monarchs around the world. I'm Zanny Minton-Beddoes, editor of The Economist, and this is a podcast special featuring our conversation with Henry Kissinger, which we're publishing just days before his 100th birthday. I was joined in the interview by our deputy editor, Ed Carr, who also joins me in the studio here today. Ed, hi, nice to see you.
3: Hi, Zanny, Good to be here.
1: What was your impression of Kissinger?
3: Well, for me, what was really interesting is perhaps there were 20 or 30 years when Kissinger's thought wasn't especially relevant after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was all about jihadism, about America as an overwhelming superpower. And with the rise of China and the arrival of dangerous new technologies and weapons systems, it's as if Kissinger's sort of historical relevance has come storming back and he himself draws comparisons to the world before the First World War with Germany as the rising power, with the weapon system, machine guns, the beginnings of tanks, the beginnings of planes and huge cannons as this enormous destructive power that was unleashed on the world. And the longer we spoke, the more engaged he became. And the more focused he became and the more insights sort of tumbled out of him.
1: For a man who's approaching his 100th birthday, he does have an unbelievable amount of stamina. I think I was probably more tired at the end of the (laughs) seven and a half hours than he was. But Henry Kissinger, you know, he's an incredibly polarizing character. He is, let's remember, a man hugely criticized, vilified even, particularly by those on the left, as a war criminal or, or at the very least as someone who was associated with terrible human rights abuses, whether from Chile to Bangladesh. And this is something that he, of course, would absolutely deny. But he is still, I think, a figure of whom many people have very strong views. Nonetheless, he is not a person who lives in the past. A conversation with him is very contemporary. It's about today, and indeed, it's about the future. Specifically, I wanted to talk to him about how to avoid World War III. Now, that might sound hyperbolic, But having just been to Beijing and to Washington frequently, I am struck by just how poor the relationship is between the US and China. It seems genuinely broken. So that's where we began. Can we start with your assessment? How great is the risk of war? Are we on a path to great power conflict?
2: We are on a path to great power confrontation. Both sides have convinced themselves that the other represents a strategic danger. So a situation can arise in which an issue escalates into a confrontation. And when you have an issue like Taiwan, that danger is even more enhanced.
1: You've spent your lifetime considering the concept of world order. Put today into that historical context, how does the threat today compare with previous episodes?
2: Well, I started thinking about this very early on in my life, probably when I was in military service during the war how to prevent such catastrophes from happening again. The conventional answer in, at the end of World War II was to prevent aggressors from imposing their will early enough so that they could not achieve military dominance. When I entered government, I turned out to be in a position in which my recommendation would be part of any final decision to go to war. I asked myself increasingly how one could have a stable system based on mutual assured destruction. But it presented us with a paradox which We, on some level, haven't solved. We can all take credit for avoiding nuclear war for 75 years. That is an important achievement. But it was never explicitly negotiated that way.
1: So, Ed, the kind of core of Kissinger philosophy, if there is one, is that You have to think about great powers' interests, and you have to use diplomacy effectively as a means of avoiding war. And I think with relations between America and China, now at a half-century nadir, it struck me that it was worth going back and revisiting that period when, as national security advisor to President Nixon, one of Kissinger's most consequential acts was orchestrating the diplomatic reopening with China.
4: Meanwhile, Mao's forces grew stronger while the debate raged on what U.S.-China policy should be.
1: America had severed relations with China after the Communist Revolution. It refused to recognise Mao Zedong's People's Republic, dealing only with the defeated nationalist Chinese government that had retreated to the island of Taiwan. The mainland was isolated, diplomatically and economically. The US had quietly sought change for a while, with messages funneled through diplomatic back channels. In 1971, Kissinger made a secret visit to Beijing, where he met with Premier Zhou Enlai. Kissinger's trip set up a much grander spectacle. Nixon announced that he would visit China himself.
0: I have taken this action because of my profound conviction that all nations will gain from a reduction of tensions and a better relationship between the United States and the People's Republic of
1: China. Nixon and Kissinger hoped that bringing the United States closer to China could further divide China from the Soviet Union.
0: Dr. Henry Kissinger sits in on the talks that are animated, constructive and frank. At the summit, face to face, Two leaders who direct the destiny of one out of three persons on the earth. The gate to friendly contact, says Joe and Enlai, has finally been opened.
1: The reception was sealed with grand banquets and speeches from their hosts. It is the common desire of the Chinese and American people to enhance their mutual understanding and friendship and promote the normalization of relations between China and the United States. ABC News broadcast a chopstick lesson.
0: Sorry, With chopsticks, sir. I would eat lightly. I couldn't make anything stick. Show me how you do it. Stanley, I'm told that Mr Kissinger has improved his technique, that uh, no one knows if the president has taken chopstick lessons yet.
1: The trip was hailed as a success. It resulted in the Shanghai communique, which acknowledged the desire on both sides of the Taiwan Strait for one unified China, without picking sides. While still in China, Kissinger explained that it was what could be lived with, but perhaps not what was perfect.
4: It was therefore decided that each side would state its position on issues in a section. It would not pretend to an agreement which did not exist and which would have to be interpreted away in uh, the subsequent implementation.
1: Kissinger has continued to encourage steps towards mutual understanding in the decades since his early meetings with Zhou Enlai more than 50 years ago.
2: So now the situation is that China is developing genuine capabilities plus an economy that is competitive to some extent with the United States. So we are in the classic pre-World War One situation, where neither side has much margin of political concession and in which any disturbance of the equilibrium can lead to consequences. It's our duty to maintain the equilibrium if we know how to define it.
1: One thing that is, I think, difficult sometimes to understand is what China's own conception of its global role is. I believe when you first met Zhu Enlai, you had dinner and you were discussing conceptions of world order.
2: In my first conversation with Joe and I, I had prepared a little speech of how we got there. And uh, it ended with, so we now find ourselves in what to us is a land of mystery. And before I finished, Joe held up his hand and said, may I interrupt? Tell me what is so mysterious about China. And I gave a banal answer because he said, let us see that we can take the mystery out of it. And after you know us better and there is a billion of us, I hope it will not be so mysterious to you.
1: It was so funny listening to him saying that. I thought, you know, how true that still is today that people find China a land of mystery in the sense that, you know, wherever you are, whether in Europe or in Washington, people aren't quite sure what China is trying to do. And so many people in Washington think that China's real goal is to supplant the U.S. as the world's leading power.
3: And interestingly, when you go to China, you hear the complete contrary of that that the United States is determined to keep China down at any price.
1: That's true, Ed, but Kissinger, he disputed the common view in Washington about China's intentions,
3: right? So I think this is a a very Kissingerian insight. And it's really one that says China's becoming more powerful. Inevitably, as it does so, it wants a greater say in the way the world works. And that's only natural. But to say that that means it wants complete domination of the world is to go too far. Remember, he thinks of the world in terms of balances. And as China's weight in the world increases, it only makes sense that the scales adjust to reflect that.
1: But he also left open the possibility that there might be malign intent. Kissinger is often seen as a bit of a China hugger. I mean, after he left office, his consulting company had a lot of business in China But he acknowledged that, you know, we wouldn't know and we don't know what China really wants. And so deterrence through a strong military is absolutely essential.
2: Well, the basic question is this. Is it possible for China and the United States to coexist without this threat of all-out war with each other? I thought, and still think, the negative proof of that has not yet been given. Because Taiwan is a special case. Every Chinese leader has asserted its essential connection to China.
3: Kissinger launches into this story about how when Mao and Nixon met, Nixon being Nixon, tries to negotiate a whole lot of deals, and Mao interrupts him and says, I'm a philosopher. I don't deal with these subjects. Let John Kissinger deal with this. And that all goes on fine, except when it comes to Taiwan.
2: When it comes to Taiwan, he was very explicit. He said, there are a bunch of counter-revolutionaries. We don't need them now. We can wait a hundred years. Someday we will ask for them. But that's a long distance away. So this became the basis of our arrangement, that the Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Straits affirm their goal of one China. The United States does not challenge that proposition. It's no doubt that the implication of our conversations was that we would not support a two-China policy and that they would not use force.
1: Let's fast forward to today. Have either or both of those elements changed? Has the US position Changed
2: on Taiwan? Well, that policy was continued until the Trump administration. He wanted to be perceived as exacting demands he made in the economic field. I agreed with the objectives he had to get a better balance he then turned it into quite a confrontational matter.
3: Trump went to try and negotiate some trade concessions from China, an objective that, that actually Kissinger agreed with. But what he didn't agree with was after this in the press conference, when Trump claimed that he'd extracted these concessions and sort of humiliated China. And Kissinger thought that was a turning point. And He also argues, I think accurately, actually, that broadly the Trumpian policies towards China have been continued by the Biden administration with slightly more liberal rhetoric.
2: So the margin for concession here is very limited. On the other hand, the way things have evolved now, it is not a simple matter for the United States to abandon Taiwan without undermining its position elsewhere.
1: In dealing with Beijing, the US has always considered the effect on its positions elsewhere. That was just as true half a century ago, when Nixon was managing the relationship with Moscow.
0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. As you know, the Soviet-American talks on limiting nuclear arms have been deadlocked for over a year.
1: As the diplomatic dance to reopen China was playing out, Nixon and Kissinger were also reaching out to the Soviet Union. The hope was that splitting up the two communist powers would drive them both closer to the United States.
0: As a result of negotiations involving the highest level of both governments, I am announcing today a significant development in breaking the deadlock.
1: With Moscow, Washington wanted to jumpstart arms control talks and broadly lower the tensions between the superpowers, hoping that maybe the Soviet Union could encourage peace talks in the Vietnam War. Through back-channel negotiations and a visit to Moscow, Kissinger and his Soviet counterparts came up with agreements to limit long-range and anti-ballistic missile deployment. They also set up the building blocks for detente. The statements were deliberately vague the powers committed to peaceful coexistence and relations based on sovereignty, equality, non-interference in internal affairs and mutual advantage. In May of 1972, fresh off his visit to Beijing, Nixon headed to Moscow. From the Kremlin, he addressed Soviet citizens on the results of the talks.
0: We have agreed on means of preventing incidents at sea. We have established a commission to expand trade between our two nations. Most important, we have taken an historic first step in the limitation of nuclear strategic arms.
1: Leonid Brezhnev, the Soviet leader, reciprocated with a visit to the White House a year later.
0: At the summit in Washington, we will not only build on the foundation that we made, laid last year, but that we have the opportunity to make even greater progress than we made last year toward the goals that we share in common.
1: The next year, Kissinger reflected on the cooling of tensions.
4: We must oppose aggressive actions, but we must not seek confrontations lightly. We must maintain a strong national defense, but we must recognize that in the nuclear age the relationship between military strength and politically usable power is the most complex in all history.
1: In the decades since, the global balance of power has shifted, with China supplanting the Soviet Union as the counterweight to American dominance. And what about Russia? Is Russia now fated to be you know, the junior partner or the vassal state to China? And what would be the consequences of that?
2: Russia has been integrally tied to Europe at least since the 15th century. And so much of the great history of Europe has involved Russia. And within Russia... There has always been this ambivalent feeling of living in unique danger but also having a unique moral relationship to Europe. I have never met a Russian leader who said anything good about China. And I've never met a Chinese leader who said anything good about Russia. They are sort of treated with contempt. And even when Putin is in China, he is not shown the kind of courtesies that they showed to Macron, taking him to a special place that is tied to the history of the Chinese leader. and They don't do that for the Russians. So it's not a natural alliance.
1: This status of Russia as the junior partner, the vassal partner in Kissinger's mind, is clearly not a natural state of affairs. It's been brought about by the destruction of Russia's relationship with Europe. Thanks, of course, to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Was where we are now inevitable? Was it a failure of Western diplomacy or was it the catastrophic failure of judgment by Putin.
2: It was certainly a catastrophic mistake of judgment by Putin. The evolution towards it, I thought that the decision to leave open the membership of Ukraine in NATO was very wrong and unwise. Because, if you looked at it from the Russian point of view, in 89 they controlled Europe up to the Elbe River. And every square inch of what they withdrew from became part of NATO. The only thing that was left was a country they always considered as the little brother closest to them organically, or historically. And now that is going into NATO. So I think for Putin, it was a final turning point. And at that time, Putin was even saying in conversations with me that he didn't object to Ukraine becoming part of an economic system with Europe. And then if you look at it last year, he made a proposal on long-term NATO, and we didn't take it seriously.
1: So at this point, Kissinger restates an argument he's made that is quite controversial, that it was a mistake for NATO in 2008 to dangle the possibility of NATO membership
3: to Ukraine. It's interesting because in offering Ukraine membership to NATO, NATO is doing something that's bound to anger Russia. But at the same time, NATO is not really serious about the offer. So it's not doing anything to protect Ukraine. So it's just adding to instability.
1: So now we're, I don't know, two and a half hours into this mammoth conversation and we discussed China, we discussed Russia and then uh, Kissinger gets on to his third area of dangerous threat for the world, the third source of instability, and that is artificial intelligence, AI. Now, he clearly, and by his own admission, has no understanding of the technical side, although he does you know, mention LLMs, large language models, kind of in passing, as though he does know something about what they mean. But quite clearly, Henry Kissinger, a few years ago, decided that this new AI technology was going to be transformative and has already written one book on it, is planning another, and sees this as one of the great threats facing humanity.
2: We may well wind up destroying ourselves. And a point is now quite reachable where the machines can refuse to be shut off Many senior scientists believe that they know more than I do.
1: So you have the risks that come from both the US and China acting incautiously. There are the risks that come from technology. Together with your careful assessment of risks that you've spent your career doing, how much time do we have?
2: Look. I think the technology will become more and more dangerous when combined with the other factors within five years.
3: Five years takes us to 2028, either next through the next presidential term, and it looks as if the next presidential term is going to be between Biden and quite possibly Trump. And that, That's not renewal. That's not a Kennedy coming in who can inspire something different. That is a continuation of...
2: Yeah, I think, I don't think Biden can supply the
3: inspiration.
2: And I'm hoping that the Republicans will come up with somebody better. Hmm. Hmm. Look, it it's not a great moment in history, but the alternative is total abdication.
3: I think in Kissinger's view of leadership, a real leader is someone who's prepared to face up to the state of the world without fooling themselves or taking false comfort in anything. That's a leader who does not abdicate responsibility, but seizes it.
2: That's our big challenge. We must serve. If we don't, the predictions of failure will be proved true.
5: Hello, I'm Anton LaGuardia, diplomatic editor of The Economist. I'd like to tell you about some of our reporting on the great power rivalry between America and China, and also between America and Russia over Ukraine. I recently toured America's bases in the Pacific to understand the growing nervousness about the possibility of war over Taiwan, and how such a conflict might unfold. I spoke to, among others, Admiral John Aquilino, the head of America's Indo Pacific Command, who would oversee any such fight with China. He told me war with China is not inevitable and it's not imminent. But less reassuringly, he added if deterrence fails, you must be prepared to fight and win. My colleagues have reported on the growth of Chinese power in all its dimensions and examined the deepening tech war between the two giants. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. Otherwise, for access to all of our journalism and to join exclusive events with Zani and others on our team, visit economist.com/intelligenceoffer. That's economist.com/intelligenceoffer. The link is in the notes for this podcast. With the highest number of young STEM graduates per capita in the
0: EU. Ireland has the people and skills your company needs to succeed here. IDA Ireland, the National Investment Development Agency, can help you find and nurture the people you need to internationalise and thrive. Our talent is just one of the extraordinary benefits Ireland has to offer. Learn more at IDAireland.com Invest in Extraordinary.
1: In the first half of our conversation, Kissinger set out the challenge, that strategic rivalry between China and the United States, coupled with new tools of destruction, could lead to disaster. In the second half, he proposed solutions. He started with how to rebuild trust between Washington and Beijing.
2: I hope that both leaders come to a one fundamental understanding. Traditionally, in diplomacy, settle something easy first to get used to that. That may not be possible here. I don't believe that climate change I don't think it will by itself create huge confidence. So the key question now is, is it possible for China and the United States to establish a relationship that reduces the danger of conflicts? Well, I have thought that if the two presidents meet, rather than list all their grievances, which they know every day. Let's say the American president would say, Mr. President, the two greatest dangers to peace right now are we, two, in the sense that we have the capacity to destroy humanity I think we should agree between ourselves to try to avoid such a situation. We should appoint each of us a small group of advisors and these advisors should have rapid access to each other and meet at some designated relatively brief intervals, but long enough so that they can watch development. And then you and I should meet once or preferably twice a year to review that agenda.
1: He makes it sound very simple, doesn't he, Ed? You know, you, you get the two presidents together, they agree to meet twice a year, they appoint some advisors who also meet reasonably regularly, and one boom you've sorted the world out.
3: What's very Kissingerian about this proposal is that it's a small group of people meeting in secret, without formally changing any policy. You know, his time in office was marked out by this kind of secret diplomacy um, where, you know, the State Department didn't have a clue what he was doing as National Security Advisor. And it's a similar thing, you know, it's a sort of just behind the scenes, diffusing things, getting detente going. Kissinger, Mark II.
1: We saw Kissinger over two days, and overnight between the first and the second parts of our interview – the news broke that Xi Jinping had, for the first time and at last, called Volodymyr Zelensky, president of Ukraine.
2: The Chinese have called the Ukrainians. Yes. And they have begun to be mediators.
1: Exactly. I was going to ask you about it. I thought this was exactly the kind of thing that you would be recommending.
2: Well... When you read our statement on that subject, we say, when will the Chinese wake up and call the Russians aggressors? But that's not how the Chinese think. The Chinese don't enter this as moral judges. They enter it as an expression of their national interest.
3: China does at least want some things that Kissinger thinks are essential which is Ukraine surviving as an independent state and a downplaying of the nuclear threat but Kissinger's analysis here is that China's entry into this complicates things and it comp- for a number of reasons you know one is that China's close to Russia uh, and the other is that China doesn't want NATO expansion and initially Kissinger himself was against Ukraine joining NATO but his analysis has changed
2: so now I'm in the weird position that people say, look at him, he's changed his mind. Now he's for membership of Ukraine and NATO. And my reason for that is twofold. One, Russia is no longer the conventional threat it used to be. And secondly, we have now armed Ukraine to a point where it will be the best armed, most modern country, and with the least experienced leadership in Europe. So, for the safety of Europe, it is better to have Ukraine in NATO.
1: So, your argument for having Ukraine in NATO is an argument for reducing the risks of Ukraine to Europe, rather than an argument about the defense of Ukraine.
2: No, but it's also, we've proved now we're going to defend Ukraine. In my view, it's madly dangerous, because the Europeans are saying we don't want them in NATO, because they're too risky, and therefore we'll arm the hell out of them, and give them the most advanced weapons, and How can that possibly work?
1: It's a great power view of the world that you hear from Kissinger. I mean, what Ukraine itself might want is of much less importance to him, I think, than how it all fits into the big mosaic.
3: And all all those other countries um, around Europe and other members of NATO who have a say in whether Ukraine can join. And actually, that also goes for the other point that Kissinger was keen to underline, which is that Russia needs to be welcomed back into Europe.
2: It's not wise for us to say we want to split them from China, but it's something which we should have in mind. And the prerequisite for it is to give Russia, first of all, not to destroy it totally in the war. And after the war, to declare its membership in Europe an important objective.
4: Last month, the
0: President of the United States said nothing you young kids would do would have any effect on him. Well, I suggest to the President of the United States if he want to know how much effect you youngsters can have on the President, he should make one
1: long-distance phone call to
0: the LBJ ranch
1: America's ability to lead internationally has always relied, to a certain extent, on domestic factors, on political leadership, and on what the public wants. When Nixon, and Kissinger with him, took office in 1969, the country had already soured on the war in Vietnam. The administration made a pledge to bring the war to what Nixon called an honorable end.
0: It is a plan which will end the war and serve the cause of peace, not just in Vietnam, but in the Pacific and in the world.
1: Nixon and Kissinger wanted to avoid a total defeat, to win a peace deal they could defend at home and abroad.
0: In speaking of the consequences of a precipitate withdrawal, I mentioned that our allies would lose confidence in America. Far more dangerous, we would lose confidence in ourselves. Oh, the immediate reaction would be a sense of relief that our men were coming home. But as we saw the consequences of what we had done, inevitable remorse and divisive recrimination would scar our spirit as a
1: people. They reasoned that a strong position diplomatically would have to start with a strong one militarily. And they knew that the North Vietnamese were using bases in neighboring Cambodia to store and transport weapons. So, in 1969, Nixon authorized American bombing of Cambodia, a neutral country in the war. It was kept secret from the Cambodians, Congress, and the American public. With anti-war protests growing, Nixon and Kissinger felt the American people would not support any expansion of the war.
2: Thousands gathered in Chicago, New York, Boston,
0: San Francisco, Ann Arbor, New Haven, and many other cities. In addition to youthful protesters, the crowds included professors, clerics, and members of the middle class. In Washington, Mrs. Martin Luther King led 45,000 candlelight marchers from the Washington Monument to the White House.
1: The following year, Nixon did publicly announce the bombing of Cambodia.
0: We take this action not for the purpose of expanding the war into Cambodia, but for the purpose of ending the war in Vietnam and winning the just peace we all desire.
1: But he denied it was already underway.
0: For five years, neither the United States nor South Vietnam has moved against these enemy sanctuaries because We did not wish to violate the territory of a neutral nation.
1: Trust in government, already weakened by the time Nixon took office, eroded further over his term. In 1972, with the presidential election looming, pressure increased on peace talks happening in Paris with Le Duc Tho, a North Vietnamese representative.
4: We believe that peace is at hand. <laughs> we believe that an agreement is within sight.
1: Jane Fonda, the actress nicknamed Hanoi Jane for her anti-war activism, cast a cynical eye on the Nixon administration, accusing them of dishonesty in their conduct of the war. Everyone
0: seems to feel that um, the Paris peace talks, the secret talks between Kissinger and Le Duc um, are on the verge of bringing us results. And we called uh, members of the Indochina peace campaign phoned the provisional revolutionary government in Paris, I think about three days ago, spoke to um, one of the head delegates there and asked him if there was any basis to the rumors. And he said that, in fact, there is no basis to the rumors.
1: The peace talks were stalled.
0: The next day, Hanoi was bombed, the French embassy was bombed. Fortunately, it was the French embassy because it had it, had it not been the French embassy and a French person killed, we probably never would know that Hanoi was being bombed.
1: Historians debate what impact the bombing in Cambodia had on the course of the war in Vietnam. But for Cambodia, it contributed to instability and energized a violent revolutionary faction, fueling a bloody civil war. The extent and timing of the bombing would eventually become public, along with the exposure of another case of deception at the heart of the Nixon administration, one that would end it, Watergate. So that period, Ed, I think was the period that crystallized in the public the polarizing nature of Henry Kissinger and the sense that the U.S. lost track of its values, what made America exceptional. But that's an assessment I think that Henry Kissinger would balk at.
3: Kissinger thought that America was in terrible decline at the beginning of the 70s and Nixon's foreign policy doctrine was one of living up and accepting the limitations of the US. And there's something similar today, I think, in that Kissinger thinks the US has to take a hard-nosed calculation about what is in its interests. It can't afford the illusions that it can do everything in the world and twist the world to its shape.
2: What I think we must try to do is to bring China into some international system. I don't insist that they have a democratic system. I prefer it. But even the democratic systems now have to relearn their own domestic conduct. But that's a different issue.
1: What is the role of human rights in that conversation? Let's say Xinjiang and the abuse of the Uyghurs The Chinese react very angrily when that's mentioned, but surely America's values impose an obligation on it to crusade for them.
2: Yes, but it makes a difference whether you state this as a universal principle that you are trying to impose on them as a society or whether you state it as something that will, is bound to affect your conduct, but leave the decision to them. We cannot redo the world on a democratic basis. Look at Sudan. We've certainly tried in Sudan, and we tried in Vietnam, and we tried in Iraq. Our perception of the nature of democratic system is based on Western experience.
1: Even in the examples that we discussed with Kissinger, this is the part of the conversation where I found myself actually disagreeing with him the most. I totally agree that there needs to be a balance between realism and idealism. And if you push too far in the idealistic direction, as I think the US did with some, for example, the Iraq war, you end up in a troubled place. Nonetheless, it's felt to me that where he appeared to be coming out was somewhat too pragmatic, too realpolitik for my liking. But how did you feel about that balance?
3: To me, it's the big question in the next 20 or 30 years is how that's struck. I mean, we've been living for the past 30 years through a period in which, uh, you know, for most of that American power is completely unchallenged. And it was possible for the West to make conditions. But it hasn't worked terribly well. If you look at the global South and its response to calls to condemn the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, well, actually people say, no, you know what, we think the West are hypocrites and we're not inclined to join their side. So where Kissinger at something right is that we have to be sure that those policies are actually designed to bring about change for the better, rather than just to solve our own consciences while actually annoying everybody else and making them think that the West is hypocritical.
1: That's certainly clear. It's been the basis for much perfectly reasonable accusation of hypocrisy. But what really matters is how you ensure that American leadership is effective? Because I think we can all agree with his point that American leadership is still utterly essential to responding to the tremendous challenges that he laid out. He seemed very, very down on the prospects of American leadership.
2: But what I don't want to do is to sound pessimistic.
1: (laughs) You're (laughs) doing a very bad job in that case. (laughs)
2: because (laughs) I know I'm doing a bit This is the problem that has to be solved. And I believe I've spent my life trying to deal with it. It's not a problem easily solved right now. And I don't necessarily know how it's going to be solved.
3: Normally when you talk to people about global affairs and foreign policy, they're, they're very strong on the analysis and quite weak on the prescriptions. (laughs) And Kissinger actually, you know, he brought to bear a lifetime's thought on these issues. And it's a thought that has a new relevance today because we are at a particularly perilous moment. And for those who think that Kissinger is just a warmonger, what was interesting was that a lot of these thoughts were brought to bear on how to bring about peace, how to lower the tensions, how to make the world safer, they weren't about, you know, going ahead and blithely fighting wars and bombing Cambodia. They were quite different from the Kissinger that most people have in their mind.
1: And at the end of our many, many hours of conversation, Kissinger went back to a philosopher he'd cited in his undergraduate thesis, Immanuel Kant. I don't
2: compare myself with Immanuel Kant. But Kant, in his essay on universal peace, said peace will come about in one of two ways, either through human understanding or through catastrophes of a magnitude that impel human understanding. And he didn't say which he thought it could come about by reason, but he didn't guarantee it.
1: For almost a hundred years you've been in a world where on balance progress has been made. As you Yeah,
2: but after some very terrible periods.
1: After some very terrible periods. Now as you look forward, I think there are probably not another hundred years of you surveying this world. Are you fundamentally optimistic or pessimistic?
2: Look, my life has been difficult, but it gives ground for optimism. I think to inspire the young generation, they need a demonstration of, of faith in the future. And that can be done.
1: Dr. Kissinger, thank you.
2: I won't be around to see it either way.
0: <laughs>
1: this podcast was produced by Stevie Hertz and Sam Colbert, with sound design from Weidong Lin and fact-checking from Erica Shin. Thanks also to Harriet Noble and John Prado. Our executive producer was John Shields. You can find a full transcript of our conversation with Henry Kissinger on our website. Let us know what you think of this episode. You can write to us at podcast.economist.com, and you can listen to all of our shows at economist.com forward slash podcast. The Intelligence will be back on Monday.